I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. I believe he's eternally begotten of the Father. I believe that for us and for our salvation, he came to earth from heaven. I believe that for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And I believe that on the third day, he rose again from the dead. I believe. What does it mean to believe? We've all just stood or sat in our couches as may be and recited to each other over the airwaves that we believe each and every one of those things and some other things as well. And we're not alone. It's something that uh, many have done already today, this morning uh, in New Zealand and Fiji, everything that's east of here, if my geography is correct, and many more will later on today or in the viewing of this later on. What does it mean to believe? Some say that it's a matter of mental assent. It's about acknowledging facts. That's what it means to believe. But others might say it's not the substance of what you believe that matters, just that we believe, that we, we hold on to something and cling to something in our life, that we have faith in something. Whether that thing is true or not really doesn't matter. In fact, the nature of you believing it is what makes it true for you. It's your personal truth. Such people holding on to that obviously didn't watch the cutting room floor last Sunday night, something to go back and watch on the nature of truth. But another group might say that belief is having faith in something despite all the evidence to the contrary. That is, if you could prove something by facts and figures, then it's real and it's not belief. It's, it's, it's something else. One man who will presumably stand today or maybe he'll sit on his couch at home and say that he believes that on the third day Jesus rose from the dead is the author of this book. It's written by an Australian, it's written by an Anglican, it's written by an Archbishop even, Peter Carnley. He's got a chapter here in this book on Jesus' resurrection but what he does is try and systematically demolish any argument that you or I or others might mount as to the actual physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Yet he maintains, he insists, he is adamant that he believes that Jesus rose on the third day. But what he means has nothing to do with Jesus' body and where it is or whether it stayed in the grave or anything like that. In fact, the resurrection, according to Peter Carnley, didn't happen to Jesus at all. It's something that happened to the disciples. They met the risen Jesus in here or in here. They had a vision or an experience, uh, maybe a recollection of their dead master that, that made them glad as they moved through the stages of grief from denial to anger into, into acceptance. And they came to these fond memories and recollections and Jesus was now alive again for them. Now, it's no surprise to meet people who doubt Jesus rose from the dead physically or even to read books about it. But you, are you surprised to hear that there's Christian leaders who, who doubt, seriously doubt, they're skeptical about, they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And yet he's not the first and he's not the last church leader to doubt it. In fact, and this might surprise you, that Jesus' resurrection from the grave was in doubt right from the very first Easter when it occurred. The Christian leadership at that moment did not believe it themselves. 
They thought the reports of Jesus alive again sounded fantastical, delusional, just kind of wishful thinking. They said, you're dreaming to those who told them. And yet the searing power and reality of the resurrected Jesus, it, it cut through their unbelief. The raw facts shook their world. And it, it, its physicality woke them, it roused them from their stupor and set them on a course that would mean that they would die defending not just the truth of the facts of the resurrection, but that they would go about proclaiming the majesty and power and victory of the Saviour, even over death. And it's that very moment of transformation that John records for us in John chapter 20. A transformation that takes them from grief into joy. It moves them from fear to confidence. It takes them from doubt to declaring my Lord and my God. And it's my hope and prayer that as we engage with this thrilling passage that our hearts would be lifted, our faith would be strengthened and the joy of knowing Jesus alive and reigning on high might so grip us and change us that no day of our lives will remain untouched by the wonder and the truth of it all. Now, by the time we get to our reading, Mary Magdalene and the apostles Peter and John have, have, have come and discovered the empty tomb. But John shows us three incidents where Jesus came to different ones of the disciples. Uh, there's lots of other examples that he could have chosen, but he's picked these three not because they just show that he's truly alive again, which they do, but because they each give us different special insights into our Lord and our Saviour in his resurrection. In these three particular moments of all the incidents where Jesus met with disciples and followers and even enemies after he was alive again, in these three moments, Jesus shows his faithfulness, he sends out the faithful, and he secures the faithless. And they are our headings for today. So in the first incident, then, Jesus shows his faithfulness. It's that moment where he met with Mary Magdalene beside the empty tomb. So here's a woman who's, who's nothing spectacular in the world. What we know of her from the Gospels is that she'd been saved out of a life of, of terrible uh, sin and demonic possession. And despite what Jesus Christ superstar and the Da Vinci Code might say about, uh, about her, she's actually got no special place amongst the disciples. She's not going to go on and become the real power behind the church and they all bow to her and worship her. She wasn't Jesus' mistress or anything at all like that. That's all nonsense. But Jesus appears to her to show us his personal loving faithfulness to just one disciple, no matter how insignificant he or she may be, his loving faithfulness. And it's, I think it's a powerful lesson. That's the kind of God that Jesus is. Now, Peter and John have already gone to find the others and tell them something's happened to Jesus' body. They're not sure which, some foul play, they presume. But Mary hangs around and she is devastated. She is bawling her eyes that she's really upset. We, we read here that Mary stood outside the tomb crying. They're not tears of joy because she knows the truth. They're tears of sorrow and anguish and frustration. She's convinced that someone has stolen the body. 
She says it twice here. They've taken my Lord away. They've taken him. She's really torn up about it. How could they do this to, to Jesus' body? And the saddest part of the whole event is that her tears were really needless. She had nothing at all to cry about, though she didn't know it. In fact, everything she needed was right there with her, though she didn't realise it. And Jesus won't leave her in her sorrow. Jesus, just as he promised he wouldn't back in chapter 16 at the Last Supper before his arrest, he said to the, the disciples that they gathered, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn uh, while the world rejoices, but your grief will turn to joy. I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. That, that's what he promised. But they didn't understand it. They didn't believe it at the time. And, and here in the most beautiful way, Jesus proves the truth of his own words. He found the one of them who was the most upset, the one who was in tears beside his tomb. And he used her as a living example of how his love reaches down to, to turn our grief and our sorrow into joy. Now, at first, she's completely unaware of who he is. But with just one word, her tears are stilled. Verse 15. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. How did she know from just one word? How did she know this was him alive again, that everything was different? When you love somebody and, and they say your name, you know exactly who it is. He spoke and she looked into his face and, and there he was. It was him in the flesh. It wasn't in the grave where, where she had presumed and he should have been in her mind. And all she wants to do is to hold on to him and hold on to him and grasp him and, and keep holding on to him. You might know what it's like. Maybe you've lost a child at the, at the, at MacArthur Square or someone else and, and, uh, you find them and, you know, at the same time you want to lecture them. You just want to hold them and hug them and not let them go. Yet Jesus says, don't cling to me. I'm alive again, but I, I, I'm not staying long. I'm going back to the Father. But, but Mary, go and tell the others. Well, Mary's overjoyed. She takes what he said to heart and she runs off to tell the others. Which brings us to the second incident that John recounts for us. Jesus has shown himself faithful, but now Jesus comes to send out the faithful. He comes to his disciples now, I don't reckon they believe Mary at all because they're, they're locked in the upper room out of fear of the Jews. I'm not sure they'd be afraid of anything if they really had grasped that they are followers of the one who has conquered death itself. And what happens? Jesus comes to them in the middle of an upstairs locked room. Now, how, how did he get in? How did he get there? 
Now, all sorts of people have suggested different things. Some people say that he must have climbed up through an unlatched window. You know, they locked the door, but they didn't think anyone was a cat burglar uh, who could get in there. Uh, some people say that he slipped down from the roof. Uh, maybe he did uh, learned a lesson from the paralysed man, his four things, and dug a hole through, And but I think they would have noticed and he might have recorded that. One commentator suggests that uh, obviously what happened was Jesus sneaked in uh, before the door was shut and he, he hid himself in the room so that later when they were all there and they are all huddling together in fear, he could jump out and go, surprise! None of that's right though, is it? That's not what happened. The Bible just says that he came. And what John's getting at is that he miraculously appeared among them. He he whether he came through the wall miraculously or just appeared or something bizarre. That's the point. This isn't normal. It's remarkable, strange. In the same way that he could walk on water when he was alive the first time. In, in the same way that his resurrection passed through the grave clothes. So, that, um, so he went through the locked door. Now we know from Luke's gospel that this thing, uh, it scared them out of their wits. They said, is this a ghost? But he's no phantom. He's alive and he's well. And he proves it. He shows them his hands and he shows them his side. But really, he's not there to prove his resurrection to them, although he does that. He's there because he's got something else in mind. He's got a job for them to do. That's what he's here, to send them on their their new career, their new work. And so verse 21, again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, my guess is that there were more than just the 11 apostles left there. Uh, it may not have been the 120 that were going to be there a few weeks later. But when Jen, John talks about disciples, he's normally talking about the whole group, not just about the 12. So when Jesus came to the upper room that night, he was sending all of his followers out. He says to them and he says to us, you're, you're going to be my reps. You're, just as the Father has sent me to display all of his grace and truth, if you go back to chapter 1, uh, he is the word become flesh, full of the Father's glory, full of grace and truth, and he has been displaying that. So now you are to go and you're to be my witnesses. And friends, that's our task as the church, as, as Christian men and women, is to be his witnesses in the world and to carry the gospel. But he doesn't just send them out without any help alone and helpless. You can't just go running around without any resources. And Jesus gives them the ultimate help. Have a look, verse 22. And with that he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, is that John's cut-down version of Pentecost? Maybe. I think it's more likely it's a, it's a pledge by Jesus of what is to come in a few weeks' time when the whole 120 of them will be gathered in the same room on the day of Pentecost. But either way, he's, he's asking, arming them for the task ahead. He's giving his Holy Spirit to them. He's giving them the power of God. He's giving them the presence of God to be with them and to guide them and to guard them, to give them the words to say, just as he promised back during the Last Supper just a couple of days before. He said he would send another counsellor to be with them so they could remember Jesus' words, 
so that they'd be able to have the strength to stand up for him when they're under opposition and testifying, you know, for their lives when there's hatred. Uh, he, the Holy Spirit will come in order to convict those who hear the gospel of sin and righteousness. And, and here he is delivering on exactly what he's promised, just as Jesus always does. Jesus always delivers. And my I add, this, this is a promise for all believers. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Don't think that you have to go and look for the Holy Spirit or, or that you need to, to pray and fast in a particular way to receive the Holy Spirit into your life. Or that there's, there's two levels of Christians. There's those Christian, super Christians with the Spirit and there's those, you know, lesser Christians who don't have Him. He's, He's here with you now. Jesus gives us his spirit when we come to know him. That's, that's the power that Jesus gives to his disciples to equip us for the mission. But then he tells them what the impact of this mission is going to be. And it's not a small thing. It's enormous. It's something breathtaking. This is the result of what they're going and speaking on his behalf will do. Verse 23. If you forgive anyone's sins... Their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now, that's a bit weird, and you might say that that feels like a bit too much responsibility. Now, he's not saying that you or I or the apostles can go around saying, well, I don't forgive you, so God's not going to, or I do forgive you, so God has to. He's not saying that. It might Some people have twisted it to say that. After all, Jesus says elsewhere, who can forgive sins but God alone? And so the idea that he's setting up Peter as the Pope or that there'll be uh, a church authority structure where there's a priesthood that stands between people and God, it's just not what's going on here. So what is he saying? Well, he certainly, we, we do have, he's telling us that we do have the right to say, whether someone's sins are forgiven or not. But it's not because we stand between them and God, but because God has given us absolute clarity on what the effect of the gospel is for people and their standing with God when they receive it and embrace it. To anyone who is conscious of their sin and who repents towards God, and believes in the Lord Jesus, you can say to that person with absolute confidence and assurance, friend, your sins are forgiven. Just as you could say to the person with absolute clarity and confidence, to the person who says, I don't want Jesus, I I don't believe it, that's nonsense, I, I won't receive it. You can say, friend, your sins are not forgiven. Not because you're the one determining it, but because God has said. Not because we're better than them, nor because we get to decide, but because that's the way of salvation that God has laid down. And God offers no doubt about how forgiveness comes and, and how someone receives it. If they trust Jesus, then they're forgiven. Can you imagine what it would be like if we didn't have that kind of power? Could you imagine 
Jesus saying, go and people, tell people how they might be right with me. Here's the gospel. It's great news. And, and we go and tell some guy about it and they say, well, did it work? Do I know? Am I forgiven? And we go, well, actually, I'm not really sure. I, I, I guess in the end we'll both know. <laughs> That's hopeless. It's weak. It's pathetic. That's not the way it is. And it's not the gospel. You've got to be able to say, if you turn to Jesus, then every last sin in the past, in the present, the ones you may inadvertently commit in the future, they've been done away with, they've been cleansed, they've been washed away because Jesus has paid for you. That's why he died on the cross and now he's alive again. Sin and death, it's all been conquered. Your sins are forgiven if you trust that. You've got to be able to say that, and we can say that. We have all authority to say it because he has paid for it all. Friend, your sins are forgiven. The new life that he's offering is is yours. But there was someone missing that night in the upper room. The apostle who's come to be known in history as Doubting Thomas. When the others came and told him about what had happened that night and they, they, they were shocked and surprised but rejoicing, he, he didn't fall down and praise God and join in with the joy, rejoicing, just the opposite. He just stood there and looked at them like they were so stupid. How could you believe that nonsense? There's no way that could have happened. And so Jesus comes again. The third incident that that John gives us when Jesus comes to secure the faithless one. Now, Thomas might come across as if he's the only real pessimist amongst the group, but it's not like he was thinking any different to the rest of them when Mary told them the news. He just verbalizes his doubts, and it's so helpful that he does. I love people with uh, foot-in-mouth disease, not foot-and-mouth disease, but foot-in-mouth disease, and I love that the, you know, Apostle Peter's had that a number of times. Thomas has had the same issue before, but he verbalizes his doubts and he's absolutely adamant about it. Verse 25, he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I get to put uh, my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not do it. Now that is a skeptic. Sounds a lot like the angry atheists of today who demand that God come and appear right before them and, and do something so remarkable that it could not be anything else other than God. But you know what? Even if God did that, they go, do it, give us another one. Just want to check. But Jesus, he isn't going to let his friend go. And so out of care for Thomas with such doubts, out of his desire to, to secure the one who won't trust, just based on his friend's words, Jesus comes to Thomas. He's there for that one purpose. He's there for him alone. Don't ever think that Jesus is so busy or so far above us that he doesn't care for us individually. For one weak disciple, Jesus is there. He came to Thomas and he said, peace be with you. And it's not just a warm, fuzzy greeting, a nice thing to say. It's God's peace that he's wishing on him. It's, 
He's saying, be at peace with God, Thomas. Everything's right. And it's so encouraging to know that the love of Jesus is such that he always meets us at the point of doubt to bring us to faith. God's like that. He comes to us in care and compassion. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad? When your faith wanes and he comes and meets you in the, the weakness of your faith and lifts you up. And so he comes to Thomas and he says to him, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out and, and, and put your hands into my side. Stop doubting and believe. But you know what? Thomas doesn't even have to go through with the test. He said he'd have to actually reach out and touch him and put his hand there to know. He doesn't get that far. He doesn't follow through. Jesus being there with him is enough. And he falls on the ground and he cries out to the risen Lord, my Lord and my God. He's not, it's not the Lord and the God. It's not a, a, an exclamation of blasphemy. Um, he says, my Lord and my God. It's an admission of who he now knows Jesus to be. It's, it's, it's personal and it's profound. It's a statement of complete trust that Jesus has done everything. He said he would. And now he's risen and he's defeated death and he, he brings forgiveness to those who are his. Can you make that confession with Thomas? Can you say with him, my Lord and my God? Because that's who Jesus is. But just to cap it off, Jesus lays down a principle. Then Jesus told him in verse 29, Because you've seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. It's one thing to believe when you've seen it all, but it's so much greater to believe when you haven't seen yourself. And you know, since the time of Thomas, there have been hundreds, thousands, literally millions who have believed without ever seeing. And it's not because they're wishful thinking. It's not because of groupthink. It's not because, you know, there's powerful communicators who can manipulate people and are dripping, you know, with their, their wonderful warm voice like David Blouse and they can just, people just want to listen to them. They, they believe because it's the truth. Now, one man who didn't believe any of it, a guy called Charles Colson, was a special aide to President Nixon when the Watergate scandal happened. And he said this. Uh, he became to believe in Jesus. And he said, because of the evidence, because of the testimony of reliable witnesses, I will believe. Here's his quote. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if that wasn't true. 
Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. We believe, not because we've seen it with our own eyes, but because we believe in the normal course of evidence that truth is communicated through reliable witnesses like this, people who would endure even to death for the truth, who never once faltered. And it's not even just these 12. There were others that day. There were many other accounts. At one point, Jesus appeared to 500, and there were, some of them were still alive when the Apostle Paul wrote uh, the letter to Corinthians. Paul himself was a hater of Jesus and his followers, and yet Jesus came to him and turned his life completely around, so he became the great evangelist. Why has John written all of this down? Last verse of the chapter, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Belief in Jesus is not just a mental assent. It's not a just thing that we stand or, in this case, sit and say to each other because we want it to be true or because we want to belong to the group and the group happens to say these things. It's, it's not just wishful thinking either. It's, it's trust. That's what belief is. It's trust. It's taking the evidence seriously and it's trusting it. It's relying on it. But it's more than that. It's a life-changing thing. It's because true faith is giving yourself in dependence, in utter reliance, uh, and who could you possibly rely on more than the one who is the only Son of God? The one who is eternally begotten of the Father. The one who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. The one who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. And the one who lives and reigns because on the third day he rose again from the dead. Who could you possibly trust more than him? Is there anyone more reliable than that? The evidence is in. The witnesses are there. It's okay to be a skeptic while the evidence isn't out there. But once it is there, and you can see it, or, or if you uh, don't refuse to look at it, that's not scepticism anymore. That's just foolishness. It's just obstinance. It's just pride. The evidence is in. Jesus is alive. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you've taught us today. God, we're just so thankful for your tender love demonstrated in what you did for Mary Magdalene. We're so thankful that you love us in the same way and you call us by name. You know us individually. Father, we're so thankful for the fact that you came to see your disciples and that you commissioned them and empowered them with your spirit and and gave them the ability and the right to say whether sin was forgiven or not because of what a person does with Jesus Christ. 
Father, such authority, such responsibility has been given to us. God, help us to use it by going into the world in the power of your Spirit and speaking boldly of sin and of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over it. And lastly, Father, thank you that you came to Thomas because there are times when our faith uh, is weak, when we struggle, and we need to, you to come to us and strengthen us in our weakness. We thank you that you do that, that you love us. We thank you for the people you've put in our lives. We thank you for the gospel of truth. Father, thank you that you never fail to meet us in our weakness and turn our faith to, uh, from something weak to something strong. We're so thankful that Jesus is alive today and that he reigns as king and that we are yours. Give us greater and greater confidence and joy and passion for him, our mighty Saviour. Amen.